start to think about how changing our meaning around stress and our meaning around challenges we face in our day-to-day lives actually, which is our perspective, has a huge impact on the way that we actually overcome challenge and trauma. And um, I was always interested in studying illnesses that just don't get better, the things that we don't have solutions for, because with PTSD, that's like 60% of of Americans with PTSD are not adequately treated. They still have symptoms after trying multiple treatments. Um, And that's a really tragic statistic. And, you know, these were the groups that I saw that there's a real opportunity to make a big improvement in their care. Hey, 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 it's Keith Fiveson with the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. We're an official podcast for the Psychedelic Science 2023 Convention. And today we explore the transformative power of mindfulness and its impact on our mental health and well-being. I'm your host, and I've got a very special guest, Dr. Dave Rabin, uh, also known as Dr. Dave. He's a renowned expert in the field of trauma and stress-related disorders. And Dr. Dave, welcome to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. Can you give us a little background or overview of how you became interested in treating PTSD, depression, anxiety disorders, and substance use disorders? Sure thing. And uh, thanks for having me, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, This is a very exciting event for all of us in the field. It's the biggest psychedelic science conference that has ever occurred. So it's been a lot of work and it's very exciting to be a part of this movement. Uh, I think I got into this space and as a psychiatrist and neuroscientist, I was originally um, just always interested in the way that we make meaning from the world and the way that stress impacts us. And I noticed as a kid growing up, especially when you start to get into adolescence and things become harder as a young, young adult that and you have to take on more responsibility that uh, stress really impacted the way that I was thinking and feeling about the world and my friends and colleagues too. And, um, to the point where some people would burn out and and not be able to work or feel good or function anymore. And then other people would actually, over the same kinds of stress or even harder stress, they would actually step over it and overcome it and really strengthen their ability to adapt and grow and become better, stronger versions of themselves. And sometimes we find ourselves in both of those situations at different points in our lives. And that really interested me because it made me start to think about how changing our meaning around stress and our meaning around challenges we face in our day-to-day lives actually, which is our perspective, which is something that any of us can change at any moment, has a huge impact on the way that we actually overcome challenge and trauma. And um, I was always interested in studying illnesses that just don't get better, the things that we don't have solutions for, because with PTSD, that's like 60% of, of Americans with PTSD are not adequately treated. They still have symptoms after trying multiple treatments. Um, And that's a really tragic statistic. And, you know, these were the groups that I saw that there's a real opportunity to make a big improvement in their care. And in 2012, uh, I was studying aging and resilience in the body and the brain and trying to figure out, because at that time, studying consciousness was still very challenging. And one of my good friends, Dr. Rena Paris, who's also a psychiatrist who was in med school with me at the time, sent me uh, 10 of the top papers that were uh, published in the last 15, 15 years prior to that in the psychedelic space and said, hey, Dave, you know, you really should think about becoming a psychiatrist because this is where the field's going. And I had no idea about the high quality research that was being done by Matt Johnson and Robin Carr Harris and, you know, MAPS and many others in the psychedelic space and how the high quality of that research was actually resulting in these 
paradigm shifting results we'd never seen before in mental health. And this was just the early days, but uh, seeing that was really, really inspiring. Uh, and I realized that within you know, 36 hours that psychiatry was my path. And, uh, and then I went on to study that at the University of Pittsburgh and start to get into the understanding how psychedelics work, the mechanisms and how to effectively recreate some of the benefits of psychedelics without requiring drugs, which has always been an interesting topic for me. So, uh, you know, it's wonderful to hear your story and uh, I um, am very moved and inspired by the work you're doing. And, you know, specifically, as we start to take a look at psychedelics and the opportunity to reboot, reset, reframe. And, uh, you know, for people that have treatment-resistant depression or PTSD or what have you. Uh, so within that framework, um, you know, as you know, we talked about the fact that I practice mindfulness, breathing techniques, and so on and so forth. I always talk about, you know, being able to change your story and change your life being able to recognize what's going on and then change your life. So as a trauma expert, I'm wondering what are some of the common misperceptions that you believe uh, uh, might be out there about PTSD and other stress-related disorders? That's a good question. Um, so I think the first misconception about PTSD is that you can diagnose it in the moment, meaning that you could have while you're in the midst of a challenging, difficult experience, you can say this experience is going to give me PTSD. That is the single biggest mistake that most people make. Or they say this experience that I'm in right now is traumatizing. I am being traumatized right now. Thinking about that is actually confusing what the term trauma means because trauma has to be reflected on in the past because trauma is our body and mind's response to challenging, intense, meaningful, experiences that we are not adequately supported after right and so there's a there's a constellation of things that have to happen where we are experiencing intense meaningful and events that are perceived as threatening to us where we don't have support and then we can look back on those situations months later typically or years later and say hey that experience might have been considered a trauma because look at the impact it's had on me since look at how my body is feeling since i'm not sleeping as well i'm not able to focus as well my mood's irregular you know those kinds of things would be i'm always feeling afraid right so that i think is the biggest misconception about trauma and ptsd is that it's it's a look back and it requires time to understand the impact of these events in our lives before we understand that they are either traumatizing or not oftentimes we experience incredibly challenging things but we have adequate support in our community. We're not blamed for the mistakes and all of a sudden we're able to overcome it and learn from it and move on. And that is a healthy grieving and natural healing process that's very community-based. But a lot of us don't learn that and don't have the community support. And so it becomes a lot harder to recover. Um, but ultimately, the other misconception that that leads to is once we have been taught that we're traumatized or we've experienced these events and that it means something about us or takes or we're victims now it takes something away from who we are that is actually taking all of our resources as we if we start to learn to become afraid we get good at it, learning to become afraid and we get better at it because our bodies are learning machines and so we automate things we do often and it doesn't matter if they're helping us or not and so that is teaching our bodies to be in a stress state more of the time which our bodies don't realize is not a lion chasing us in the jungle. It's us just feeling bad about ourselves because we made some mistakes or we have some regrets or what have you. 
and then our bodies are sending all of our precious blood and resources to our heart, lungs, skeletal muscle, motor cortex of our brain, our fear center, amygdala, and where do those resources come from? They come from all the parts of our bodies we need to function at rest to make us feel good. The reproductive system, digestive system, immunity, uh, metabolic system, our sleep and rest and and recovery system. There's only so many resources to go around in our bodies. So if we want those systems to function the way they need to, evolutionarily, the way we evolved to, and we want to be able to adapt to stress better, it's imperative that we remind ourselves that we're safe using the mindfulness techniques and the breathing techniques and the movement and the soothing touch and the soothing music and these things because all of that helps us to rebalance our nervous systems and our bodies and help to restore and and basically nourish and move forward the repair process and recovery process. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense, and uh, I find that you're very articulate in the uh, way to uh, look at it, you know, and to really understand. Uh, you know, I uh, in my uh, practice of working with uh, individuals, I generally talk about uh, being able to uh, uh, have hindsight, insight, and foresight. So, uh, and then being able to uh, rework your meaning-making machine as you, you know, what, whatever the patterns were, whatever the stories were, and to really look at them from all sides. But uh, I, I think there's a, there's a real wonderful aspect of what you're doing, uh, you know, because what you're really doing is giving the individual who might have either gone through a mindfulness program or actually had maybe some more severe trauma using psychedelics to go ahead and go ahead and stop the default mode network, go back into their past, take a look at you know, emotional reframing, have the emotional literacy to reframe it. So I think that's wonderful. And, uh, you know, not a lot of people are really uh, understand uh, some of the characteristics of uh, what you're doing at uh, Apollo uh, from the neuroscience uh, perspective. Can you explain the concept of touch signaling and safety to our brains and how this idea uh, really led the development of uh, Apollo neuroscience? Absolutely, uh, and and I think Apollo Neuro uh, Neuroscience, just to catch everybody up, is a company that we developed out of our research at the University of Pittsburgh. My uh, my wife and I co-founded it, based on the science, the neuroscience of how soothing touch, soothing music, and tools like MDMA assisted therapy help us feel safe in different, especially therapeutic experiences that help us. Uh, start and kindle the recovery process and nourish that and keep it going. And what's really interesting is that if you look at the literature on trauma, and this is, you know, this, I'm going to give you a summary of the neuroscience of, and psychological literature of trauma up to the state from the last 30 years or so, 50 years, what we've found is that trauma and why it's like what the core difficulty with trauma is, which we've all, every single person listening to this, every single person on the earth has had some trauma doesn't mean you've had some terrible horrible thing happen but we've had stress we've had people tell us it's not okay to be us we've had people tell us or withhold love from us right all of these things are relative traumas that impact us we've been picked on in school so what happens when you're picked on in school first day in school well around a bunch of your peers for the first time you don't know them you're hoping to get approval and acceptance by them so that you feel comfortable what happens when you bring your your authentic three-year-old five-year-old self into that situation and you get picked on there's a part of you that says it's not okay to be me 
what does it's not okay to be me mean? It means I can't trust myself to be me. If I can't trust myself to be me, how can I feel safe being me at all? It's ne- it, you've, we've already just in that simple experience, we've created a negative thought loop around I love and affection and being accepted by my community are being withheld from me because I'm bringing my full self into this room, this experience. So that creates what Gabor Mate and many other people say, like a fractured sense of self where we don't feel safe effectively in our own skin. And so we do things to distract or numb ourselves to that because that's what we're taught and that's what our society affords us. It turns out that doesn't actually solve the problem. That's what causes addiction and substance use disorders and gambling disorders and video game addiction, et cetera. It's the impulse of addiction is really what we're, you know, we're trying to create an, um, an updated language for the stuff. Addiction needs to be updated as, as impulsive or compulsive avoidance of discomfort. And if that discomfort is caused by you not liking yourself because somebody told you that you're not okay to be you even before you can remember, that's enough. And that will carry with you through your whole life. So we realized that this was happening in veterans, in our patients with who are non-veterans with PTSD at the University of Pittsburgh and VA and how common this was. When you actually start to ask people and look at literature, they all feel afraid all the time. And so we thought, well, what helps folks like this feel not afraid? MDMA-assisted therapy. It's one of the most potent safety-amplifying medicines we know of, and it works in just an eight-hour period. Um, and soothing touch, soothing music, empathy, eye-to-eye contact, me showing you that I'm listening to you and that you're being heard and seen and not judged, right? All of that cultivates safe space for you to just be your vulnerable, authentic self. And that facilitates the healing process naturally. So we as therapists have known that for hundreds of years from these kinds of interactions, probably longer if you go back into Eastern and tribal traditions. And so we thought, well, if MDMA seems to be working the way it is, which I had even more experience with when I got trained in it by MAPS in 2016, thought, well, seems to be amplifying the safety pathway, which is what we're cultivating with our presence in the therapeutic experience. So what if we could target that with a wearable and give people something they could take out of the office or to use before they even get into the office to help them self-regulate and self-restore their own self-confidence and effectively as you said kind of like widening the window of opportunity because when you feel safe change becomes fun and easier there's less resistance to change and newness we're under threat and we're constantly under stress newness is scary because it's unfamiliar to us and so our bodies just focus on what we know and we effectively get tunnel vision which we know from people who are in fight or flight you miss all the opportunities because you're just like i need to get out of here or you know fight this situation right now so Apollo is the first wearable that delivers safety signals to the body that can be used in, in and out of psychedelic experiences and is in trials currently for in and out of psychedelic experiences being used by ketamine providers, but it's mostly used by women aged 25 to 55 who have kids and work to sleep without drugs so that they take less drugs and they're less reliant on substances of abuse. And that has been really exciting because we're seeing technology that is actually changing people's health, not just tracking you and telling you that you're not well and that you need more naps or more sleep or whatever. This is actually changing people's health by delivering the vibrations to the body that change the body and help balance vagal and autonomic tone. So it's safety signals. 
And it's just, and it's that simple. And it's just the feeling of your mom, like, holding you as a newborn, right? It's just that fundamental hardwired pathway that's activated in these situations. So, um, so there was a lot to unpack with what you were just saying, you know, right? Because uh, I'm a vet. Uh, and, uh, and, um, yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm a part of the Heroic Hearts Project as a healthcare ambassador. And, uh, yeah, and really helping vets with PTSD and severe trauma, treatment-resistant depression, and so on, by bringing them offshore uh, so that they can have experiences. Uh, but uh, the other side of it, I mean, in, historically, I also worked in the customer experience area where, you know, we were constantly trying to get people to be present to what the conversation was and what the ability, and many people are dealing with stress, whether or not it's implicit or trauma, whether or not it's implicit or explicit, as you say. And, you know, your research is interesting. I've, I've, I've gotten the, I'm wearing the Apollo. Uh, I felt, as I said earlier, I, I went to dinner last night and I felt a little insecure. I didn't have it on. You know, but uh, maybe because I, I felt like I needed a hug. Uh, but, uh, you know, certainly, I, I, we all need more hugs, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the way it works. So I'm wondering about your research in neuroscience and psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh and how it really contributed to your overall understanding of chronic stress and its effects on mental and physical health. What what was that about? And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, I think we had this original idea back in 2014 that was pretty novel, as in nobody had really thought of it before, which is that when we are stressed, as I mentioned earlier, chronically stressed or stressed in the moment because we have too many responsibilities, too many kids screaming, too much news, what have you, we eat not enough sleep, we cha behavior change is very challenging. It's very, very challenging. Like, we're almost always going to go for the Haagen-Dazs and Netflix or the cigarettes if we're stressed out and rather than the healthy behavior change. It's just the way our brains work because we, the, because the habit that's familiar or the behavior that's familiar is actually more soothing to us, even though we know it might be destructive to us. Familiarity is, is safety for us. And so... Studying this at the University of Pittsburgh, what we realized is people who have anxiety, depression, PTSD, ruminate a lot. You know, negative intrusive thoughts about ourselves, judgmental critical thoughts about ourselves, and just a ongoing continuous loop over and over and over again. And it's worse in some people than others. But that is an inner our inner voice thought loops basically trained, practice thought loops telling us, I'm a crappy person. I'm not worthy of love look at all these mistakes I made. This is just va extra validating of my crappiness as a person, right? And then how do I change that? Well, I can't because look at me. Why, why can everybody else do it and I can't, right? And we create this narrative and a story that uh, effectively creates a box around us of illness that's really hard to step out of. And especially if you don't realize you can step out of it. And so we thought, well, if that is preventing people from stepping into the healing process how do we measure it what's happening in the body so what we realized is that heart rate variability which is one of the leading metrics of resilience and recovery currently tracked in almost every single wearable technology tracks it and it's becoming integrated into mental health treatment slowly but surely it is low in ptsd patients and folks with depression chronic pain insomnia um, and when it is low 
these people are less likely to recover. And HRV being low is a sign that our stress response system, our fight or flight system is overactive all the time and that our recovery nervous system, the rest and digest parasympathetic we were talking about earlier, the vagal system is too low in activity. And when we do activities like getting good restful sleep, deep breathing, meditation, mindfulness, biofeedback, soothing touch, soothing music, guess what? Vagal tone increases, HRV goes up, people say they feel recovered, they feel more rested, their racing thoughts slow down, their ruminations start to calm down and stop, their pain decreases, right? So all of these things are consistent with safety-based vagal techniques, but the problem is they require a lot of effort. And psychedelic-assisted therapy requires even more effort, right? And more cost. You're talking like $14,000 for three doses of MDMA and 42 hours of psychotherapy. Ketamine's like typically four to $8,000 for the course to get treated, to get to remission. And most people can't afford that and there's very few providers. So we thought, well, ac- you know, talking to Rick Doblin, talking to people in the psychedelic community, what's your biggest problem? Biggest problem is access to care. So at the university, we thought, well, okay, let's figure out how to see if technology can induce these states similar just by providing you know, these soothing vibrations that are like songs to the body. And let's put them in double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover studies where every single subject has no idea what vibrations they're experiencing or whether they're experiencing placebo or active or no vibration and they don't know what they're supposed to do and i'm blinded to it or the researchers are blinded to it and let's actually see in a real trial where we're measuring their brain waves and their heart rhythms and their respiratory rhythms and their sweat and their pupils and their physical movement let's measure everything we can what's happening to their bodies and that was where we were able to find out that reliably you send these vibration patterns to people, they have no idea what they're supposed to feel or what they are, what they're receiving, and they can, 80% of people will reliably experience the same thing and report it within 30 seconds, as little as 30 seconds they can distinguish what they're experiencing. And that was the first clue that we were really onto something. And then we gave people this very, very stressful physical task, uh, which was like, ride on this bike against resistance as hard as you can and then have two minutes of recovery with and without Apollo, we'll measure your HRV. And we, that was just published showing that we statistically significantly improved heart rate variability within that two minute recovery block, which no wearable has ever demonstrated before. Um, and we showed that in cognitive performance trials with a t- task that NASA gives astronauts before they go into space, which are incredibly frustrating, challenging tasks, but simple, but very challenging, um, that make you want to give up, we introduced Apollo and HRV went up instead of down, performance went up instead of down by up to 25%, and the HRV going up as a demonstration of the the body feeling more calm or being more calm correlated directly with performance improvement. So the calmer you were in terms of HRV, the better you performed and the calmer you said you felt, right? So there's clearly a correlation that was statistically significant showing what we feel, how we perform under stress, and the way that our bodies look before, during, and after stress are all intimately related and they can be influenced by subtle stimulation in as little as three minutes. And you can get in as little as three minutes similar outcomes on cognitive tasks that you might get with an amphetamine under cognitive tasks by just turning something on that's soothing and then turning it off afterwards. And that was completely game-changing for us because you almost never see results like that, but when we saw them in healthy populations in this rigorous trial design, two trials, in, in fact, at the University of Pittsburgh, we, it was, you know, that was a sign that we were really onto something, and then that was kind of like 
the aha moment where we decided, hey, we should probably start a company and make something of this because it's going to help a lot of people. Um, I think it's amazing to think that, uh, you know, here you have uh, a wearable device. Uh, it uh, emits these signals and different uh, strengths of signal. And then within the device itself, uh, which I've been using, and, you know, there's a menu of uh, different types of uh, outcomes, you know, calm, focus, energy, so on and so forth. And I'm uh, wondering, um, in terms of the vagal toning that we talked about, um, you know, and moving back into this window of tolerance, you know, we're, we're either hypo, hypo or hyper, and, you know, really being in that area. Is it really, um, you know, I, what do you, is there a measure of some sort? I mean, is it just about interoception, the ability to really understand what's going on in your body at any particular point in time? What is it actually doing? I mean, is it, is it working on the vagus nerve and the, you know, it's a, it's a part of vagal toning, you know, because I'm, I'm wondering, it seems to me to be one part of a bigger puzzle, a very important part, you know, this, this touching, this toning, this sense of vibration, but is there a measurement process that's going on? And is there a variability uh, in terms of the impact of whether or not the vibration is low or whether or not the vibration is high or, you know, from that viewpoint of the pulsing in terms of when you're feeling the vibrations. Can you help me out with that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so we've done a lot of measurement. So you don't have to measure because when you survey people who at regular folks who buy wearables that measure, close to 50% of them say the data gives them more stress. Usually, I think that the most recent study that I've seen actually say it's more than 50% feel more stressed by looking at the data. Like they'll wake up and they say, wow, I have my patients tell me this all the time. Oh, I really felt like I had a great sleep last night and then I checked my aura ring. <laughs> Told me something totally different. What's wrong with my sleep, doc? Well, how do you feel? I felt okay. <laughs> so what's the truth? Is it your intuitive truth that I feel rested or is the aura ring no better? Or does the Apple Watch know better? And these devices are very accurate now compared to the way they were a couple generations ago, but they're still consumer wearables that are measuring things that are not with lab grade technology, right? So we have to remember to not over fixate on the data we have to remember the whole point of the data is to help us become more intuitively connected to, as you were saying, our interoception, right? The awareness of our bodies. Awareness of our bodies is the fundamental practice of mindfulness, right? It's just, that's how it starts. Just draw awareness to your body and just observe without judging, right? And observe what's coming up. And so, um, so Apollo, we realized that music does this. And music, we were all musicians in our original research team. We were all musicians. We we're all cognitive neuroscience researchers and psychiatrists or psychologists. And we thought, well, we know undeniably that music has had a powerful effect on us. So what if, and we know that music can be heard and we know that music can be felt through the skin, like bass or a subwoofer or somebody playing a bass in a live show or drums, right? You can feel the vibration of that low range more than you actually can hear it in a lot of cases. And understanding that was really interesting because that became a clue to how we can activate the touch receptor system in a soothing way and deliver different states to people with different energy levels, as you were alluding to earlier. So this turned into eight vibes. It started out as a lot more, but then we pared it down over time. Um, and so that became eight vibes, and the eight vibes are energy. They don't, they're not all relaxing, by the way. Energy is the one that's not relaxing at all. It's just meant to be like a jolt of espresso. 
Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Um, and then everything down from it, everything from energy down or down from energy is more relaxing as we go down. So social was designed to feel kind of the closest to MDMA. It's like a creative social flow state. Um, I just, Ben Greenfield, I don't know if you know Ben Greenfield, but he's been using Paul for a long time. We just had a, and he, he loves it. He's one of our oldest users. And he was just talking about how much he thinks it's like, it's like MDMA, um, which is so interesting for us. Cause when you design something and people actually interpret it in a similar way that you built it to, and you're talking about replicating the effects of a psychedelic with a wearable technology, delivering sound to the body and people are self-confirming <laughs> that that's what they're experiencing. It's like, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. It's humbling, you know, to actually be able to tap into that bodily mechanism, but it helps us remember that these accessing these parts of our selves are natural. We have the ability to access these states on our own. So there's the social, then there's focus, which is the one that improved cognitive performance by 25%. Kind of feels like amphetamines to people. Going down from there is recover, which is like, feels kind of like five minutes of moderate breathing. It's great after any kind of major stress or any kind of major um, uh, mental, physical, emotional stress, great after travel. Then there's, uh, that's the one that boosts HRV in two minutes after intense workouts I was telling you about. And then going down from there, we get to the very parasympathetic, very calming and sleepy, sleepy vibrations. So these are the slower, more, much more gentle, lower frequency vibes. So this would be calm, which is like 20 minutes, feels like 20 minutes of deep breathing meditation. And we have studied that in a trial showing it augments, improves access to meditative states in both naive and experienced meditators as measured by EKG or sorry, EEG improves gamma coherence, which you probably find interesting. And then unwind, which is kind of feels like a cannabis indica or glass of whiskey. It's like anything before bed. It's a rapid wind down and then uh, fall asleep or sleep, which is what you do in bed and it just drops you into sleep more quickly. So between those eight vibes, people can choose something that works for pretty much any state of the day and then they can schedule them to turn on at any time and it saves a schedule to the device. So you don't even need your phone around it. It runs and regulates your whole circadian sleep and wake cycle for you. Thank you. That's very helpful. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, um, your wife, uh, Catherine, uh, she uh, is working with you, and uh, I'm just wondering what her role has been. Uh, yeah, it's a sounds like it's a very nice family kind of a business, uh, and uh, you seem like a very personable guy. Uh, so what is Catherine's role in your uh, company? What does she do? So Catherine is the CEO of Apollo and co-founder. Uh, we were engaged at the time uh, in 2015 when this research was in its kind of infancy at the university. Uh, and Catherine is the business and finance and kind of marketing brains behind our operation. Whereas, and whereas my background is not in business or finance at all. I'm a physician, I'm a scientist. I am really great at writing research studies and conducting research studies and developing new intellectual property and and you know helping create like interesting like helping productize data from research that's my specialty but that's but we have very different backgrounds and so when i first uh the 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 short story is that when i first started doing this work i was invited by the university of pittsburgh to compete in innovation competitions for funding because we were working off nih grants which only leave a small amount for exploration so the university was like, hey, we'll give you money. It's easy, just compete in these innovation competitions. Of course, it wasn't easy, and I was working full-time as a researcher and a physician, and then doing this after hours, and I was literally asked to present like pitch decks 
never made a pitch deck in my life. I make scientific presentations. And for the first time in my life, I was failing my presentations. Like I was getting like Fs basically. And I could not understand how, like what I was doing wrong. But this, so I went to Catherine, I went home one day and this was taking a lot of my time after work, extra time. And I was like, Catherine, this idea we have to deliver this stimulation to the body to help you know, treat these different disorders, help people feel calm and more focused and all this, you know, it really seems to work and it's a really interesting idea, but I don't know if it's commercially viable. I don't know if we should be competing in these competitions. Is this worth my time? And she's, she's like, I'll take a look. So she came in, she took a look. She asked the team if we wanted help. Everybody on the team was like, same position as me. They're like, absolutely. And so she came in and took us from last place to first place or sec last place to second place in our first competition. And we got uh, enough money to run, kick off our first trial. And then in the next two and a half years, she raised us almost $500,000 in non-dilutive grant funding combined from the university and some other sources. And that led to seven tr uh, clinical studies that were complete over that time. This launching of 14 more studies and the building of prototypes that got distributed to, this is the most important part, prototypes that got, and this is Catherine's brilliance, she, uh, has an emerging technologies background. And so she realized that after we did the science studies and saw that there was promise here that we actually had to test it in the real world before we commercialized it to see what how people would use it. So she made a bunch of prototypes. We gave them to 3,000 people over two, two years. And what we saw was that as much as we thought people would use this for focus and cognitive performance, people use it for sleep more than anything else. And that completely shaped and changed the way that we approached the technology and commercializing it because sleep is a very different use case and focus and people can use it for both but sleep is the reason why people use it the most because once you get good sleep everything else just becomes a little bit easier so um well thank you for that and sounds like a, a wonderful partnership and a wonderful relationship a little yin yang there and uh you know uh, obviously uh doing a great job and uh, uh the opportunity to go ahead and uh, change the lives of people is uh, very significant uh, let me ask you uh, just sort of a final question here. What are your future plans for Apollo Neuroscience? And are there any new innovations or developments in the pipeline, uh, you know, for the wearable? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there's a couple areas that we're really excited about. Um, the first of which is very relevant to this conference, which is that we have never had tools for psychedelic medicine before. We've never, our toolbox as clinicians, other than psychotherapy, was prior to this, candles, incense, Palo Santo, right? Maybe some flower water, and that's it. Like we don't really have, and then we have our traditional Western medical stuff like benzodiazepines and you know prescription medications, but you know, we haven't had technology assistance and tools of the, of the trade that effectively can be delivered without supervision to clients, to patients, or with supervision to augment the experience of care delivery and to make care more accessible. And so I think the most exciting area for me right now is seeing how Apollo is being organically adopted by ketamine providers and providers who are currently delivering psychedelic assisted therapy because they deal with and work with a lot of anxious patients. And anxiety and resistance to the experience, as you know from a mindfulness background, is the single biggest reason why people have bad psychedelic experiences or nothing at all no benefit at all is because they're resistant to it or they're afraid or they're anxious 
So anything we can do, to, and they haven't learned breathing or mindfulness or mastered that before they go in. So giving people a tool that we're now seeing is actually working this way to help people calm down before their experiences in just as little as five to 15 minutes in the waiting room before they drop in with their ketamine is incredible because people are getting, they're getting better outcomes. They're requiring less medicine and the outcomes last longer because they have a tool that anchors them back to the experience that they take home and use on the go. So they turn it on at home. It reminds them of how good and joyful and blissful they felt when they were in their clinic session or their ketamine session. And then it reminds them that they can access that continuously on the go and that the wearable can train them to do that through the integration practices. So to me, so the, that is going to facilitate scaling of access to care, high quality care, and it will empower the, the patient, the client to take on more of the responsibility of the healing process on their own, which really is the goal of healing. And that goes back to ancient Hippocratic and Maimonides medicine and, and Buddhist and yogic medicine. Always the patient is at the center, right? That's where the healing comes from. So I think that's the most exciting for me right now being here. And then second, and, and to that point, we're actually, uh, are the only wearable that's being used in collaboration with the MAPS trial for integration after MDMA. So anybody who's listening to this, who has ever participated in a MAPS MDMA trial, if you're a veteran or not, um, thanks to Rick Doblin and his brilliance, uh, you know, he, we have put together a protocol that is now recruiting IRB approved study where anybody who's ever participated with MAPS MDMA can receive an Apollo for free as long as they're willing to uh, give us some, some survey data over the next two years to help us understand, help MAPS understand how people are, are doing long-term because MAPS stops follow-up at one year. So we're doing the official two-year and three-year follow-up um, after the MAPS study is over with and without Apollo for anyone who's willing to participate. So anybody who hears this, please reach out to us on our website. Um, we have a study link that you can fill out a survey and sign up for this specifically, and we really want to get you your Apollos so we can start the study. What's the link? Uh, the link is you go to apolloneuroscience.com uh, or wearablehugs.com, and you click on science. There is a studies roundup or research link, and if you scroll down or just control command F, control F, MDMA, there's only one study we're doing with MDMA right now, and it will say get involved. There'll be a little link there you can click on. Um, and I think the other thing that's coming is just more personalization, right? As a medical community, we have just completely failed on the delivery of, and promise of personalized medicine. It doesn't exist really, except in maybe certain cancer treatments. For regular folks, mental health, we do a very good job. And we're seeing the outcome of that in that people aren't really getting better. And so we are actually in a position now with the way that AI is going and progressing so quickly is that we can actually start to solve complex public health problems like insomnia or mid unwanted middle of the night wake-ups with AI through wearable technology. So this is the first feature that's a custom AI health feature that we've demonstrated that was just released as an invite-only membership two months ago. But, um, and, and if you have, I don't think you have an iPhone, but if you, it's, it's only for iPhone right now. It will be coming out in general, but this is the first time a feature that to my knowledge has ever been released that in real time can track your sleep using just the Apollo and understand when you're about to wake up in the middle of the night and then turn on Apollo predictively to prevent an unwanted wake up. So that is really where the future is going because that allows us to use leverage your data, not just to sell you stuff that you don't need, but to leverage your data, actually deliver something back to you that improves your health and then self iterates so that it learns about you and then personalizes to you because maybe your sleep pattern and behavior is slightly different than mine. That's okay. 
we're different ages, we're slightly different demographics, slightly, right? We have different sleep habits, you're a vet, I'm not, right? So there's different things that we have as our background. And as soon as we can start to understand those signatures, we can leverage that to literally change people's health. My wife is sleep, Catherine's sleeping through the night for the first time in her entire relationship. That is something that I did not expect it to work that well, right? And that's just V1. So it's a very exciting time for health and seeing the interface of wearable technologies with AI and psychedelics in general, which is what I talk about a lot. And if anybody wants to hear more about this in detail, check out uh, our new special feature show we just released to, uh, yesterday in honor of psychedelic science and Maps and Rick Doblin's work, which is called Your Brain Explained. Um, and the first episode is explaining everything about how MDMA works um, and uh, with Rick Doblin and Rachel Neuer and Ben Sessa. And you can check that out on Spotify and Apple Podcast. I'll definitely check that out. And uh, you and Catherine are doing such a great job uh, with uh, technology. And the fact that you're, the fact that you are um, sort of democratizing it, democratizing the ability for people to kind of reboot, reset, reframe, and using vagal toning and helping them to stress less and live more, I think is uh, really uh, remarkable. I just want to thank you, Dr. Dave, for joining us on the Mindfulness Experience podcast. Uh, I look forward, uh, we look forward to witnessing the growth of and the impact of Apollo under your leadership and uh, you and Catherine and uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to learn and uh, experience uh, Apollo myself. Uh, thank you for that opportunity and uh, I encourage uh, anyone who's out there to try it out. I think uh, you'll, you'll see a, a real market uh, difference in uh, your perspective. Thank you for listening to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We have other exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks, so stay tuned. For more mindfulness tips and tricks, visit our website at workmindfulness.com. Thanks again for being a part of the Mindfulness Experience. This is Keith Fiveson.